So automation, like, I mean, we can talk about chat GPT in a second and how that's changed the, the, the way people view content creation, where in the past, when people thought of content creation, you thought of a copywriter and, and a lot of other things. So that, that of course is on the tip of everyone's mind and, and thinking about that, but going even back behind that automation has really changed the, the, the marketing world where a single salesperson, you know, making a 200 phone calls, 300 phone calls a day, you know, is not effective maybe. Now, yes, it's part of the plan, but if you're not automating your emails, using sales law, outreach, huge fan of HubSpot, okay. um, if you're not using your tools to help make sure that every given hour of every given day is useful, and you're doing something that drives the next wave of messaging, then you're not doing good marketing or sales. Welcome listeners of The Dirt. I am your host, Jim Barnish, and it is my pleasure to have you on this journey with us. On today's show, we feature a fellow Tampa founder, Ben Goldman, who has built his career in the B2B data space. Having exited his company last year as an add-on to a PE-backed business, he has been through the dirt of an exit and trying to navigate that process along two other partners, founders, co-founders, with viewpoints and goals that were not always aligned, as you can imagine, people. In this episode, we dive into Ben's lessons learned from the big exit and his knowledge about the intersection of marketing, sales, and strategy in the tech and data-forward world we live in. I also love the part where we highlight some incredible growth that our shared location, Tampa Bay in St. Pete, Florida, shout out, is experiencing for entrepreneurs. If you know a founder that's looking to exit soon, probably not a bad idea to share this with them. And as always, a big thank you to our sponsor, Orchid Black. And now over to Ben Gold. Ben, say hello to everyone. Hey, everyone. My name is uh, Ben Goldman. Awesome. Ben, welcome, dude. It's been a, uh, it's been a while. Uh, it's been a, uh, it's been a long time since, um, since I've gotten you on a podcast. In fact, I don't think I've ever gotten you on this podcast, have I? No, no. I, this is my first time. I'm very excited. And as I was just telling you earlier, this is my this is my first podcast. I, I've always meant to do more of these, but uh, this is my first real podcast of the world. So, hello, world. <laughs> hello, Ben. I'm sure. Well, that was the that was the world. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, um, obviously, we got a few things we want to dive into. You've done a lot of cool stuff, as I mentioned in in my intro, and. But, you know, it, it's always best to hear it from the founder. So talk to us a little bit about your background, how you got here and uh, and what you're up to today. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm originally from New York um, and, you know, I was around startups for almost from the get go. I, uh, I did a little stint at an agency called Mindshare WPP. But right after that, you know, I, I went to my first startup, Madison Logic. Uh, that really kind of, you know, they, they're doing very well today, but showed me, you know, the excitement of startups and how cool it can be to be part of something from the very beginning. Um, and after doing a, a few other startups, you know, I then started 180 by 2, uh, which I was the chief revenue officer, co-founder of. And uh, it, it's been an amazing journey. We uh, we, we, we grew in, in three years, a very profitable business, bootstrapped uh, with no no money. Uh, to selling it three years later in 2020. Uh, today, I am uh, the now SVP of uh, business development at Anteriad, which is the culmination of uh, a bunch of other um, organizations being acquired, including Merit Direct, Compass, and a few others. 
Um, but I have a lot of experience through through 180 and prior on uh, building sales teams. Biz Dev is my most favorite thing to do. I, I think biz dev is like eating your ice cream and, and sometimes sales can be eating your broccoli, but you know, they're both good and they both do different things for you. So uh, I have a lot of experience and uh, what I sold and what I specialize in is marketing. Um, so I, I have the sales and BD knowledge because that's how we made money. But the product I sold was a lot of different type of marketing tactics, whether it was lead generation. one by 2 was focused on digital audiences and activating those across multiple channels. So working with CMOs and in the world we live in today where data is the oil that drives your marketing, I am often talking to CMOs on what they should be doing with their data, where it's stored, how to activate it. So I, I, I've been doing a little bit of advising and mentoring these days after the acquisition to help my local community, um, giving out some of the advice and knowledge that I have. Awesome. A couple of things I want to totally unpack there. Local community, uh, marketing expertise, and, and the big exit, uh, which obviously we talk a lot about liquidity events on this podcast. So um, which one do you want to dive into first? Um. Let's talk about the sales and uh, the, the, the well, local community. Quite honestly, I'm, I'm, let's talk about that. Well, we both share a local community, so that's a great start. Uh, go Tampa Bay. So talk to me about what it's like building in Tampa. Um, and obviously, you're from New York, right? Big metro, a uh, little bit different than what we got down here in Tampa, Florida. Uh, but uh, talk to us a little bit about what that, what that's like. So, yeah, I mean, I was born and raised on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, um, so again, I, I, I definitely love my New York roots and I think they've given me a lot of the hustle and, and tenacity that I, that I do have today and I've used. But when we came down to Tampa, we really started the business here. Like we, uh, my partners and I, we actually all were from different places. Myself from New York, um, Eric Schaefer and Carl were from uh, D.C. Um, and then we decided to, to move to Tampa for at first, it really seemed quality of life. Like we all have kids and family and we wanted to, you know, make sure that our, our families were, were living a quality of life. But when we got down here and when I kind of assessed the situation, you really got a sense that something was brewing here. Um, the, 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 the ecosystem was primed for being, you know, not to compare it, but like the next Austin, you know, the next, uh, you know, the next Silicon Valley in many ways, because, there, there was there were many people here that wanted to make it better. Um, but just to kind of uh, talk about like what makes Tampa great in general is that like, I mean, you can't beat the sun. And, and, and I've learned that I am solar powered in the sense that like I thrive off the energy that exists, you know, just by being outside and, and seeing the sun and then and then you're know, going on a phone call and, and, and trying to do what I do every day. So. You know, sometimes being in New York during those cold winters, um, you know, can get a little, you know, <laughs> depressing when you're when I'm dragging my feet on my way to the subway and I have to get in there cold and then get out and then still hustle. What I mean, what I can say on the other side of that is that, you know, a lot of times the people around you can give you a lot of energy. But yeah. what we have here in Tampa is truly, truly unique. Um, I think more and more people are going to see that from an outside perspective on how unique Tampa is uh, with in the country, but also within Florida itself. So it was it was a great, great move on our part to move down here and build our business. And I think we weren't just building a business. We were building a tech ecosystem in the last five years. And uh, it's been exciting to be a part of it in a small way. Well, it's been excited to 
work on it with you at times. So uh, thanks for moving down here. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you um, when you when you think about what's next for Ben Goldman, is Tampa the place for you then? Oh, absolutely. Nice. nice. I, I, I want to do more here. And I think, you know, being a part of other, you know, uh, philanthropic things, like uh, I recently was on the board of, of uh, uh, DePaul for uh, School for Dyslexia, uh, which I've kind of um, started to dive into more, which is, you know, helping my, my own daughter. I, I, was, I am dyslexic. Uh, I had to go to a special school early on. And uh, giving back there has been something I've been passionate about. I'm also being a mentor with The Wave. And helping mentor those companies and seeing, hey, some of those companies are built here. A lot of those companies are actually being built in all over the world, Israel, Germany, New York. And they're saying, hey, can can I move down to Florida with with what I want to do? Can I find the engineers? Can I find the funding? And and to be truthful, it's not always that easy. The funding part down here is is not always as easy as it might be in Silicon Valley or New York. So there, of course, there are challenges, but challenges don't mean that those obstacles, you know, are insurmountable. They just mean you have to recognize what those challenges are and how you might work around them, and and also gives you the opportunity to to build new things um, that that will lead themselves to the next generation and the next entrepreneur. One thing that, again, I talked about DePaul, one of the things that me and uh, Linda are working on is this new entrepreneur club that's starting at Rompella, where literally we're going in and teaching kids what entrepreneurism is. Right. And that's something that I'm really excited about because, you know, kids are naturally, you know, creative and intelligent and and they, they think out of the box in so many ways that adults maybe find harder. Yeah. So so teaching them what that there could be a, a job for them outside of maybe with their nine to five corporate entity. There's a job for them in something that they want to do, something they're passionate about. And and starting this entrepreneurial spirit from from top down and bottom up, you know, from startups to schools to kids to USF, we 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 doing it from all sides and and that's how we get this done. Yeah. How how do you how do you think having dyslexia changed your journey as a as a founder, as a as a human? Well, I tell this to my daughter. It's, 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 it was a gift. It's an absolute gift. And I'm so thankful for it because it, it taught me a few things. One, it, it does naturally have, um, you know, a way to, to think differently. You have to think out of the box. That just comes natural with it. But what it really taught me is the value of hard work. I don't think that you can truly appreciate how hard Myself, my daughter and people that have to work to do the simple things, to to simply write and read things that, you know, when you, you see a lot of kids, they do it naturally. But I had to work for it. And that work ethic paved the way for me to become who I am today. Um, and the hustle that I have is a direct effect of me having to, to overcome those challenges and feeling, you know, stupid, feeling not smarter than everyone else. But, you know, I wasn't going to let that stop me. I just powered through, worked through it, and now like I, there, there is no wall that I can't go through. So mm-hmm. that that was the gift of, of of dyslexia in many ways, beyond just the the ability for my mind to, to see things that many people don't. Yeah, it's 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 crazy that uh, we think things hold us back when really they, they they're such an opportunity to push us forward. And I I fear that there's a lot of potential founders out there or people that don't think that they're good enough to start a company for whatever that reason is, whether it's something that's, 
nature or nurture that's that's gotten us down. <laughs> and um, you know, it's great to hear stories of of overcoming um, you know, any anything in general. But you know, the 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 way that you talk about dyslexia and pushing forward, I'm so glad that you're giving back to the community around it because who knows, maybe you meet someone who ends up starting a company because of this motivation from from Ben Goldman himself. Absolutely. And and not to say that things don't come to people who wait, but the things that they get are usually left over by the people who hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Hard work breeds luck. I'm a big believer in that. Always. It's it's amazing how much luckier and how many things you get and how it appears that, oh, yeah, he's he's he really got lucked out. Yeah. Uh, the, the harder you work, the luckier you are. And I, that's that's a cliche, but it's it's really very true. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a true cliche. <laughs> the only kind of cliches that I appreciate. So <laughs> so um, so let's go back to some of Ben Goldman's expertise, which obviously you're deploying at Interior. You deployed at 180 by two. Um, you're deploying as a mentor. What what is the the true uh, niche, if you will, for your expertise and what you can offer in the world of marketing? So. One of the niches is really using data and understanding the power of data, where it exists and how to deploy it to, to, to breed effectiveness. So uh, sales kind of gets a bad rap in some instances where people think of a used car salesperson trying to sell something um, and they're just, you know, badgering a person until they say yes, which there is a part of that there. But a true sales process for most startups, a true go to market strategy has marketing sales and strategy. And each of those three things are important. And that's kind of been my expertise is understanding how each of those things fit together, where your marketing plan, which might be big M, you know, big brand awareness connects to the small M, which is lead generation and demand generation. And that's just to focus on marketing. But then you take that, how does that then drive your sales funnel and in the tools you will use? Because the only way that I've found to, to drive revenue, like impactful revenue without needing funding to do it, is a, a process, a pipeline, a way to get data, send emails, do phone calls, do your branding, and connecting your sales with your marketing and having them meet in the middle and show ROI. That's how you make money without having to ask others to give it to you. Yeah. Um, and that's what we deployed a lot at 180. Besides having an amazing product, you can't you can't a good salesperson really can't sell something that, you know, doesn't truly have value. Um, you know, we're, we're all the best sellers I've met are solution based sellers. They're ones who have a good product. And all I got to do is convince you that my product is good. And the, the convincing comes from learning what your pain points are. But, um, you know, my niche is, you know, connecting, you know, marketing, sales and strategy and and understanding there's got to be a strategy that behind your marketing and sales. You can't just do it. Sometimes it does take a hammer and repetition and persistence, but you have to have a strategy first to make those marketing and sales tactics work. So what what's uh, what's changing in that world? Like, obviously, technology drives everything off a curve like this technology, data, artificial intelligence, blockchain, whatever you want to you know, characterize it as the world is changing and it's changing fast. Right. So so how is the world of uh, strategy meets marketing meets sales changing fast? And, and how are you able to help companies better position themselves for the future? So automation. 
Like, I mean, we can talk about chat GPT in a second and how that's changed the, the, the way people view content creation, where in the past, when people thought of content creation, you thought of a copywriter and, and a lot of other things. So that that, of course, is on the tip of everyone's mind and and thinking about that. But going even back behind that automation has really changed the, the, the marketing world where a single salesperson, you know, making a 200 phone calls, 300 phone calls a day. You know, it's not effective, maybe. Yes, it's part of the plan. But if you're not automating your emails, using sales loft, outreach, huge fan of HubSpot. um, If you're not using your tools to help make sure that every given hour of every given day is useful and you're doing something that drives the next wave of messaging, then you're not doing good marketing or sales. Um, And these tools that exist like HubSpot help you connect your sales and marketing. Um, I'm also a big fan um, of, for at least B2B sales, account-based marketing. Because of that, I mean, account-based marketing and the use of intent data, um, these are you know tactics that have been around for a while, but without the automation aspect of you know setting your triggers up, understanding what intent and 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 accounts are really you know in market for certain you know so- hardware software solutions, then you're not using all of the the tools in your toolbox. So marketing has changed with automation. And now, again, I'll go back to the first thing I said, tying automation to now quality content creation, which is getting easier with chat GPT. Things are going to get very interesting. And the only thing I'll say is that from a guy who, who, who did sales the hard way, literally sending out emails one by one, making phone calls for my first job, uh, now using these automation tools to make you know, my, my team and myself just amplified. I think we are might be losing the personalization aspect where people might get an email in their inbox. They'll be like, did ChatGPT write this or did he actually do it? So like putting a little error in your email just so people know that it's a human might become a thing because emails might be too perfect. I'm not saying that's existing today, but I can definitely see a world where, you know, understanding that, you know, errors are human and humans do sales, not computers. Um, that that is uh, that's happening. <laughs> right, the artificial intelligence that identifies artificial intelligence. It's a, it's a brave new world. It, it really is. is. Yeah, yeah, it is. No, there's incredible stuff happening out there. Whether it's Chat GPT or you know every every all these other niche AI tools that are out there. I mean, the world is the world is changing, and you got to get on board. So, um, when you think of Anteriad's place in there, and obviously you know, 180 by two's exit towards it, but the, the, the platform play that Anteria represents, um, which 180 by two is part of, like what, where, where do you guys really, uh, drive the most value from a customer perspective? So, I mean, the data is sits at the heart of Anteriad and, and a lot of the acquisitions we did, you know, required data in order to make it effective. Uh, now, the use case of data is, is it can range from lead generation, which is something that, you know, Interior does a lot of, um, you know, generating those leads via, you know, phone calling, emailing, you know, social engagements. You know, people need leads. Yep. You know, if you're if you're running a sales org and you're and you're trying to have your sales team only on meetings that are matter, they're going to need leads. So a lot of what Interior does is deploy data for leads. 
Now, with 1A2's case, we were very much on the digital side where we used data for creating audiences that would then be used um, you know, in Google and DV, um, Trade Desk or Xander or, or AppNexus. So these are digital programmatic marketing opportunities that our data was used for to help you know, target the right decision maker, target the right intent um, companies that are, 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 are reaching a velocity of intent that around a given topic at the right time. There's a lot of marketing and sales is timing. So, you know, Interior really kind of surrounds B2B marketing. I'll, I'll have, I haven't said that yet. We're, we're really focused on B2B and leveraging data to help B2B software companies shorten their sales cycle, make more money, and um, reach their desired accounts at the right time. Yeah. And what was what was 180 by 2's role in that in in the in the big acquisition? What we did very well was really did uh, we built an account graph and, and not to get too technical on what a graph represents. But like if you're familiar with LiveRamp and uh, what they did to change the industry on on connecting and being the bridge between anonymous data and known data. You know, we were that for B2B. Hmm. We were the first ones in the space. Now, a lot of followers to really make that connection and that, yes, in B2B, there are people, you know, but there are accounts and you have to kind of view them separately, but equally. So what we, we were very good at is leveraging um, solutions like LiveRamp, where, you know, our graph did have the um, account link or sorry, the um, ramp ID tied to it. But then we had our own account link ID that understood, you know, these these people all work at this company. This company is showing intent around a given topic. So you need to kind of understand that when you're doing consumer marketing, you're focusing on the individual. I need to sell this individual my product, this Coke, this, you know, consumer product, a B2B. It's a group mentality. Usually these uh, buying decisions are big buying decisions. There are hundreds, if not millions of dollars being spent. No one person is going to you know, make that decision. It's going to be a group of people, whether it's the engineer, the CFO, the CEO, the marketing person. And understanding that 1A by 2 was able to understand at an account level, this is, this is how these are the decision groups at this account, and this is how we should target them digitally, um, and the person that's what we kind of built and bring to the the overarching company of Interior. So let's let's talk about some of that uh, some of that acquisition energy, if you will. Uh, everyone knows that you know my my background is all growing and exiting businesses. You've grown and exited a business, so I'm sure that's what most people are looking to hear on this one, right? So so um, you know what what was it about Interior that made it the right buyer? for 180 by two. So, I mean, they were focused. There are many companies outside of, you know, Dun & Bradstreet, Zoom. There there aren't a tremendous amount of companies that are looking at B2B the way we did, right? So the, 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 the original attraction was this is a company that is going to look at B2B differently. And they're going to be focusing on leveraging tools to help B2B companies. And that was, you know, the main reason and, and logic behind our acquisition there was that this is this is a good home for our solution to help more B2B clients than we were. Because we we were not focusing on the use case of lead generation. 
it did come in my background. I, uh, from my days at Madison Logic, I was in the trenches selling leads to IBM and Dell. So I knew the business extremely well. But uh, 180 by 2, that wasn't our sweet spot. So to expand the use cases of the data we have and focusing that on um, B2B, uh, that, was, that was really a strategic decision. Um, and looking at the future of you know, how else can our data be used for uh, B2B buyers. And, and how many potential suitors did you guys look at to get to the, to get to the end game where Anteriad was the right buyer? So we, we were very unique in that, like we were bootstrapped, right? We were creating prop, we, we were creating revenue through ourselves. We uh, was owned by my, me and the two other partners. We didn't have the, the, the necessity of, oh, we have to sell. We only have enough runway for 60 days. We need to sell or this thing's going to go under. We could have gone on forever. And we probably could have done different acquisitions, but the, the, this made sense. I mean, we did get a broker. And that broker kind of did, um, you know, you know, assess us out for a few other companies. Um, and a lot of them were B2C companies that wanted to add us as their B2B unit. Right. So I think a lot of the ones that were that we may not have gone with were were looking at us as a as a an addition to what they maybe didn't have versus doubling down on something they did. Yeah. Um, but I would say like we when we were getting acquired, um, you know, we were always kind of looking at the market. Do, should we raise? Should we? And if we if we want to raise, who should we get it from? Um, so we were always teetering between raising funds or getting acquired, which I, I don't know if many founders can appreciate. That's a very fine line. They look very similar on paper. They sound different. They think differently. But they're on, on paper. They 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 you're still selling parts of your business and getting cash for it in return. So they, they, they look the same, but they sound different. So um, at the time, you know, when, when we made the, the, the decision to, to be acquired by, by then Merit Direct, now Anteriad, um, it was a strategic one. Looking at the future and the market, and it was right in the heart of COVID, too. So I can't, I can't say that that wasn't a, um, a view in our mind that, hey, this is COVID. We're still doing well. Let's, there's a lot of uncertainty. This looks like a decent home. So you were, you were balancing the trade-off, which I think a lot of founders do in the decision point around, do I raise capital and grow the business, or do I exit and really try to drive my multiple up, um, which, you know, you can think of as EBITDA or revenue multiple, but at the end of the idea, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's a strategic multiple if you're, if you're, if you're doing it right, not just a financial calculation. So, so what, um, like, what was it that really pushed you guys over the edge and said, you know what, guys, it's time. We got three founders. It's time to exit. Um, we are, uh, we are to our next adventure. This is a good enough exit for us. And, um, and let's move on to the next thing. So we, we were all first time founders. I mean, I had another company prior, uh, which really, you know, had a hard, uh, didn't, didn't go, didn't get off the landing strip. We were still building the plane, but didn't really have a chance to take off. 180 by two, we were flying in midair, still building the airplane, but we were flying. Um, and that, that was really fun to be a part of. And one thing I will say is the team we had was awesome. Look, looking back, the team we, we have and had was absolutely amazing. And uh, I mean, one thing I'll, I'll answer the question, but I, I'll say this, that like 
a lot of times when you think of, you know, a team, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean a tensionless environment. Like there was often times where we're in the conference room and, you know, we're yelling at each other being like, we should do this. No, no, we should do that. You know, a good company doesn't mean that there's no tension. It means that you've all chosen a goal that's worthy of your time. And I think we all felt that. We all felt that we had uh, the, the, the people and, the, and the, 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 the hustle to attack any goal. Um, and, and that was the beauty of, our, the, of 180 by 2 is that we really did um, have the passion there. Uh, what we what we saw from the exit was this is the next evolution of our own entrepreneur uh, spirit. Uh, we 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 never gone through an exit before. It was uh, and the the exit that we did do was a private equity exit, so it was very much based off of you know EBITDA and net revenue, um, where VCs were evaluating on you know comps and evaluations. And when it came to data and especially identity graph data. I don't think a lot of VCs understood what we were building. They understood the revenue. They liked the revenue. They, they liked, obviously, the, the founders, but they, they didn't truly understand what we were building because it's not something that you can hold. It wasn't like uh, something we were, we were actually looking to raise to build a platform that you could kind of see. But it, it, data in itself is not something, at least the type of data we have, is not something you could, you could tangibly hold in your hands. So a lot of times when we went to VC meetings trying to raise money, there was a knowledge gap on, hey, what's this identity graph? What, what, are, you, what are you doing here? Um, but Mer- Merit got it and they understood the value of it to their B2B customers, which, you know, the, that's why when, when we made the decision to, to do an acquisition, it, 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 felt very, it felt very natural. Yeah. And the, and the trade-off of losing control um, was worth the trade-off of driving, you know, a little bit more balance into your guys's life, among other things. But, but was it was it that simple for all three of you? Because obviously, having co-founders is is tough in a lot of decision-making processes. But especially when it comes time to exit, not everyone is always on the same page. Did you guys do a good job balancing that? Any any lessons learned that other founders might be able to learn from? One thing I'll say is that a, a lot of times you hope for an exit, like that you don't build a company saying, oh, I'm going to do this forever. Well, and, and if you do do that, then you're more of a lifestyle business than necessarily like a, a tech company trying to. So, of course, all of us had expectations of selling the business. Now, we, you know, at times you think you have you're on the same page on what you're going to sell for, when it's going to be. But when you're going through it, it's much different than when you talk about. So one thing I'll say is that like when you're with your other partners, talk about the things that are attainable. And then sometimes, you know, over a beer, talk about the things that you think are unattainable. But, you know, over time, they they become more attainable. So I think, you know, when me and my uh, my partners, you know, started to go into it, we we looked at ourselves and we're like, do we are we all on the same page with where we are today? And the answer wasn't always yes. Mm -hmm. So. I think at certain times in a, in, a, in a co-founder's career, you have to look around the room and if you don't always agree, that's okay. That's, that's, the, that's natural. That's healthy. That's frankly the right thing to be doing. If you're always agreeing, um, then you know, something might be wrong. Actually, something's definitely wrong if you're always agreeing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're not going to get a lot done if you're always saying yes to the other person. You have to disagree. That's where growth comes from. Uh, but when you're talking about an acquisition and what that price tag is going to be, 
you know, having those conversations earlier rather than later um, and what it's going to be for, who's going to be to having those conversations earlier rather than later helps. Um, I would say for 180, we talked about it maybe at the, the beginning. Um, it, we, we obviously had it towards the end, but, um, you know, it was definitely an evolving process. And, and it always is. So like, you're certainly not alone <laughs> in that. That's why partnership has the word partner in it. Cause it's not always easy, but it certainly takes more than one person to make it work. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I was blessed with you know, Eric Schaefer. Uh, one of the, he's a great, great partner to work with. Um, he, he, he built great products and you know, I could not have done my job without, somebody like that building solutions that I could go out and sell with confidence. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and, and when it comes time to exit, things always get a little bit tense because obviously everyone's got their own personal motivations. When, when you, when you looked at your network and your stakeholders around you and, and um, all the, you know, potential folks that you could lean on, who did you talk to um, about, you know, everything that was going on, was it just your co-founders that did you have anyone to lean on as part of, you know, this emotional process of selling the business? That's a great question because I am a firm believer in, in really building out your circle of mentors and advisors. I had a great advisor. I have quite a few great advisors that I was able to go to. Um, I'll, I'll call one of them out now, two of them out now, one being uh, Dennis Ainge and Tom Kalidis. Um, these are guys that have been through exits. They have been founders. They have been salespeople and they've, they've done the things that I aspire to do. And I think when you're picking the inner circle, I think that's what you look for. You look for people have done the things that you also want to do. And then, you know, a lot of times people might say, well, if you get those advisors and you have them in your circle, you know, they're going to kind of maybe come to me and, and maybe, uh, no, it's, it's a, it's a work. It's, it's effort to make sure that you go to your advisors with good questions and, you know, you don't abuse the relationship, but like, if you have real questions, don't be afraid to go to them and ask the, the dumb question, because that's what they're there for. They're there to help walk you through, like, what happens when the term sheet comes? Do I have to respond right away? Do I have to give that right to the lawyer? Do I have my own lawyer? Um, do I trust the corporate lawyer? Like, like all of these questions, they may sound obvious, but it's very good to hear the answer because what might you think is obvious, it's not. Um, and somebody who did it before will know the answer, or at least you know multiple people will have an answer, and then you get to decide. Okay, the way he did that, I like that. I can do it that way. Um, and there's still things that you'll mess up and things that you wish you do differently. And that's okay. Um, that's natural, but no, I mean, I, I think I had to work hard to, to build the mentorship and then the, the advisory group that I have today. And I, and I still tap into them every day. And, um, that is, that is one of the main keys to success is finding those advisors, find the people you trust and then using them to their full capacity. Yeah, and I always found I like the I like the way you the, the you characterize the people that have had the outcome that you're driving towards, right? Um, I've always found that to be extremely beneficial, and then also people who are maybe one or two steps ahead of you who might get a little bit more of the emotional place where you're at because they were just there, right? right? And and who can connect with you know the next step in your journey. Did you have anyone? like that, that might not have had the exact outcome that you're working towards, but that was one or two steps ahead of you? Oh yeah, a lot. Um, I mean, 
there were quite a few people in in ad tech that have you know gone through acquisitions uh, you know during you know the time period uh, maybe not in the same type of product but definitely had the same outcome and hearing what they're going through right now like there's a lot going on right now like, uh, with with banks going under SVB and all of this yeah. there are a lot of things that are people are going through right now that did not exist before Evaluations right now are definitely different than they were before, where basically VCs might have been evaluating strictly on, you know, a comps of the industry on things they can understand. And then a company is evaluated on the VC evaluation where private equity is looking at EBITDA and net revenue. And it's a much more calculated, um, you, know, comp uh, you know, evaluation process. So talking to somebody that's gone through it right now and maybe not, you know, not that 10 year old knowledge isn't good knowledge. It, it might very well be, but relevant knowledge to the ecosystem in the industry right now was extremely valuable. So let's, let's talk about uh, the transition, right? Cause um, exits always sound really great. And like yellow brick roads, <laughs> when you, when you talk about it in the context of look what I've done. Right. But it's, it's, it's a dirty, it's a dirty damn road <laughs> and the transitions aren't always as, as easy as people, uh, lay them out to be sometimes. So when you, uh, when you were, you know, moving from 180 by two to then a private equity backed business, private equity backed roll up anterior, how did you handle the transition? Um, whether you look at that from the context of leadership or management or just individual emotional awareness. That's a good question because I, I would say that I probably didn't handle it the best because I probably took a lot of my startup mentality uh, into the uh, more corporate environment that uh, we were I was heading into, um, and my, my mentality a lot of the times with you know um, you know creating a startup and, and leading teams is that you don't just point and say go there. Usually my thought is I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a good case for you to follow me. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of the leadership, you know, the, the tactics that I've had. Um, but in the many cases, you know, thoroughly explaining the thought process. And again, I, I love being a leader. I love leading my team. And it was one of the, the great passions of my life is having good people um, on my team that, to 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 follow me in, in whatever turmoil um, I would I would ask them to follow me in. You know, in, in, in an acquisition, you know, you have a lot of other people. You know, we were we were a lean startup. We were, you know, at our best 20, 25 people. But for most of the company, we were 10 people sitting in armature works, you know, right next to each other talking about what we were going to do next. And going into the acquisition and the larger company, now it's 600 people with, you know, a small group of people at the center and then a bunch of layers underneath them trying to figure out, um, you know, what they're responsible for and what they should be focused on. Yeah. I think that was an adjustment that uh, I had to make. And it took me a while. It took probably a year and pro still probably learning the, the nuances of that. But that's not an easy thing for a founder who who literally says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it. If I fail, it doesn't matter. I'll learn from the failure. Then I'll keep going. You know, and after an acquisition, you got to be a little bit more strategic and, you know, uh, political in many ways where you have to really understand the environment you're getting into, the agenda of the people that, you know, you, you're, you're around and what what their goals are. Because, um, again, like with with my partners, we kind of all knew 
there's a lot more people at that interior. Like we're, we're huge now. And, um, you know, not everybody sees the world the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. So I think understanding that, um, was a lesson that I learned. So compiling all this together, what, what's the, what's the biggest tip that you've got for other founders who are thinking about exiting or going through an exit? Patience. Patience is key. And it's easier said than done when, when you're starting a business and everything feels like it has to be done yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit patience, you know, don't always send the email that you wrote uh, a second ago. Um, maybe write it and walk away and then, you know, think about it some more. Um, so, so having that level of patience is, is, is key. Um, but keep your options open. Like, I think uh, understanding that, you know, not every scenario as you play it out on the chessboard is going to, going to come out the way it does. So play chess, keep your options open, but be patient and, and recognize that, you know, when you're going through an exit, if you're going through a VC round, um, even though you may feel like your back's against the wall and this is what I have to do, it's not always what you have to do. There are always options. And, and I, I truly believe that in every scenario, there's always more than one option to a, to a given outcome. You may not see it right now. If you don't see it, as you kind of mentioned earlier, talk to your mentors, talk to your advisors, see what they did, see what other options they were able to come up with. Maybe they didn't do what the, you know, maybe they didn't do what they ended up doing, but maybe they had another option in their whole, you know, their holster that they, they thought about. And maybe that, that option is better for you than it was for them. So recognizing that there are, there, there are multiple ways to skin a cat and, um, and doing that would, uh, would have probably helped. Yeah. No, great, great advice. Great advice to, uh, to close us out every episode, we do the founder five, which is basically five quick hit questions about your growth, the company's growth, um, that other founders can learn from. So the, the first question is what is the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on? Well, activity hustle, um, I, I would, I, one thing I look at my team and we go over pretty much every week and it's not, it's not always the same exact metric. Like, like a lot of times I'm looking at email activity. How many emails did you get out? How many phone calls did you make? Um, so a lot of times you know, that might be a metric, but I can bundle this up into just being out there in the market tenaciously and actively. So that is something that I'm always looking at. Are we out there enough? Are we out there with the right message enough? Um, are we out there? Is the message that we went out with last week still relevant this week? There are ways to track this in HubSpot. And I think I, I use HubSpot in a, a great way to track, act, track that activity and track the engagement. Um, but that's something that you have to stay on top of. You have to know if you're resonating with the people that are going to be your customers. Yep. And if you're not looking at that, if you're not listening to those customers, whether they're talking to you or not talking to you, you're not focused on the right things from a marketing or sales perspective. The good old HE metric, hustle efficiency. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 sometimes you think like, how do I track hustle? I, I think he's hustling. He looks busy. And I guess that's the thing that I also learned is that just because you look busy doesn't mean you're doing the right things. Smart work is better than hard work. Everybody can, everybody says they work hard. I have so many emails in my inbox. I, I have so many, that doesn't matter. Is the message focused on the right person at the right time? That's the smart work guy. I'd rather, I'd so much rather have smart work than hard work every day. 
but maybe both also both helps <laughs> awesome all right so next one is the top tip uh for growth stage founders like yourself top tip okay so this tip is kind of you know wrapped up in in a, in a quote in that people will always forget what you say they will forget what you do but they never forget how you make them feel making sure that when you're you know you're talking to your vc that you're trying to raise money from you're talking to your 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 clients that you're trying to get a deal through make sure that you are connecting with them in a genuine manner and in the fact that like people know when they're being sold if you can show the face that you show every day to the world with your vc with your partners with your people your investors make sure you're connecting them at an emotional level then things are real then you won't be surprised by a, a, an unforeseen outcome. Mm -hmm. So um, that is that is a, a, a fundamental truth that I think that um, you know every founder needs to have. Yeah, that's a good be one. genuine. That's a good one. Uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder? Oh, I I I still love. Uh, there's two, but I'll kind of lump them. There's a question based selling is one of my favorites. I like. The ability to ask a smart question and not have, I think most people when they're selling or doing marketing or working even with their partners, they feel like in order to show somebody they're smart, that they have add value is by telling them. I've found so many times that by asking a smart question that gets to an end result is so much better because you're letting the other person talk. Um, and you're also finding out what's really on their mind. So question-based selling was a great one. And uh, an old uh, salesperson, uh, How to Be a Rainmaker. Hmm. Those two books um, really kind of not just help with sales, but it helps a founder because founders are always selling. You could be selling again. You can sell it to VCs. You could be selling to customers. You're always kind of selling. But if you sell it with solutions and questions, you're going to be successful in life and business. That's good. That's good. All right. Next one is a uh, piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. Optimism is key. Being optimistic is, is, is so hard. Like it's so easy in, in bad times to get really down and to feel like, oh, nothing is working. You know, the money is not coming in. I had to fire this employee. You know, things things get hard. Things get hard before they get better. So being optimistic and and recognizing that through that optimism, hope and confidence is born. Um, that is, that is, that is quintessential and it's not easy either. It's really hard to be optimistic when, you know, banks are falling down and your business is not coming in and you're just like, I don't know how I get out of bed this morning. And I still have my wife and kids need to go to school. You know, it, it, this things get harder before they get easier. And it, they it, usually they get the hardest and the, you feel the worst and your energy is usually down right before things get better. So the universe is going to test you and say, I'm going to make this as hard as you can just before this good thing happens. So you have to have the fortitude and the optimism to fight through it. And then you'll see the sun. You know, that's a great point because that totally counters traditional wisdom, which is to be realistic. Right. Um, and realism and optimism can happen at the same time. But at the end of the day, it's the founder, the CEO's job to 
to remain optimistic at, at all times with a sense of realism, not just with realism at the front and optimism at the back. So that's, that's at first I was like, how does that counter traditional wisdom? And then I'm like, Oh, it absolutely does counter traditional wisdom. So nice, nicely done there. Yeah. I mean, people, people oftentimes they equate optimism with like, Oh, he's unrealistic. He's not, you know, that, that, that's not, but no, I mean, you want to be focused and in the now, but you can still do it in a way that um, allows you to look at the future in a positive manner so you can guide your employees the, the right way. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Last one here. Uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography when you accomplished all you set out to do? Never stop. Never stop. Well, unfortunately, we have to stop now, but <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll always continue. So maybe it can be called "Never Stop to Be Continued," Jim and Ben. <laughs> Sounds cool. like a plan. I love it. Cool, awesome. Well, uh, Ben, you've given a ton to our listeners today. Uh, always allow for a little bit of self promotion here at the end. How can those listening help you out? Hey, I'm 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 in a place where I'm really looking to to help my community. You know, um, you know, obviously help you know my company, but but you know, if you're if you're if you're starting a business and you want some advice and you and you like some of the things I said, I'm happy to be a mentor to you and an advisor to you. Uh, I'm very much excited and energized these days, um, helping others and giving back. So as, if if you see this and you like some of the things I said reach out to me. Happy to be your mentor. And, and I'm sure some of you are going to you know, do the great things that, uh, um, that are going to change this city. So um, if you're seeing this and you're starting a uh, startup, come reach out to me and I'm happy to help you. And Ben, as, uh, as always, the things that are a little bit too early for us, I'm going to keep pushing your way because you do awesome work, man. Really appreciate the time. And um, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Um, you can email me or call me and I'll, I'll be happy to, to kind of engage with you more. Awesome. Terrific. Cool. Ben Goldman, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it, man. See you guys. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt. <laughs>